One of the places that I have not yet given tours, and uh, I don't see it in the foreseeable future, is in Uganda. Despite the fact that there's a bit of Jewish history there, it was uh, raised as an option that it should be the Jewish state, which is a story in itself. Why was it raised as an option, and who voted for it to become the Jewish state, and who was against it to become the Jewish state. But the other part of Jewish history that took place in East African, the East African country of Uganda was at the Entebbe airport um, in 1976. And on the 43rd anniversary of that daring rescue of the hostages of the plane that had been hijacked there is something I'll talk a little bit about today. So this is Yehudi Geber with another Jewish History Soundbites podcast and the raid on Entebbe, the Entebbe hijacking, Air France, Air France, excuse me, Flight 139 is hijacked by a group of terrorists um, on its way from Tel Aviv to Paris, France. And um, it's quite a famous story. It's also more recent history and it's also different than the topics usually discussed in the format and framework of this uh, podcast, being that it has not really directly related to Jewish history in Eastern Europe. But it's such an exciting story. And recently, a fantastic book came out by Saul David, Operation Thunderbolt. And there's so many new angles on the Entebbe raid that I simply could not hold myself back, um, sharing a little bit of the of the new depth that has recently come to light of this really fascinating story. Um, the plane is hijacked after a stopover in Athens, Greece, where Air France security is pretty lousy, and that's where the terrorists uh, board. Um, it's hijacked a few minutes after takeoff and eventually brought to, through first Libya and then eventually to Uganda, where it lands in Entebbe Airport near the capital, Idi Amin, who's the dictator of, of um, Uganda at the time, is cooperating with the terrorists. The terrorists are mainly of the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and they want to hold the people of the plane hostage to release all types of terrorists who are in Israeli prisons. They also want to popularize the Palestinian cause. They're helped, and it's actually led by two terrorists from a German terrorist group called the Revolutionary Cells. And interestingly enough, these Germans are from the new left. They're extreme leftists, and they're against uh, um, everything that they perceive as the old uh, conservative right. And it, it, it comes out to be a fa- fascinating um, dichotomy within their own ideals throughout the ordeal of the hijacking because it seems that the new left, the extreme leftists, uh, seem to be acting the way a generation before the extreme rightists, in other words, the Nazis of their own country, acted, which we'll get to in a second. So it's a couple of German terrorists and a couple of Palestinian terrorists, and they bring them to the old terminal building in the Entebbe airport, cramped conditions, food is lousy, bathrooms and showers is a problematic situation. Sleeping is very uncomfortable, very very poor medical care for those who need it. 
And the terrorists uh, tell them, we don't have any issues with you, with the hostages, we just have an issue with the Israeli government and we're holding you hostage. And they start to make their demands. Um, France is officially, um, legally, the one who's supposed to take care of the hostages because they're on an Air France flight. So in a technical legal sense, France is the one who's supposed to um, uh, rescue them and take care of them. The French government doesn't seem to do much. They're willing to capitulate to all the terrorist demands. Um, Israel does not want to give in to their demands. Um, They don't want to negotiate with terrorists. And the negotiations go on in a very tense way. The whole story of the Entebbe hijacking till they're rescued is a week long. It starts on early Sunday morning and it ends on Maitzi Shabbos, ironically. On Saturday night is when the on Maitzi Shabbos is when the is when the rescue happens. So uh, in, in Hasidus, of course, Maitzi Shabbos is a time of miracles, is a time of stories. So it's interesting that the miracle of Entebbe, that rescue happens on a Maitzi Shabbos as well. Ironically, now interestingly enough, what I mentioned earlier about how the history seemed to be repeating itself is that the terrorists released two batches of hostages within the first couple of days. One batch is the elderly, the children, and the sick, mothers with children, and the next one is who they perceive as non-Israelis. So, in order to separate the Israelis from the non-Israelis, they simply put them into two rooms. And they check the passports. Anyone who's carrying an Israeli passport or ID is put into the Israeli room. And anyone who isn't is put into the other room. Now, this very similarly looked like, not surprisingly, a selectia. Now, it's not exactly a selectia like it was in Auschwitz. It wasn't sending anyone to gas chambers. It was separating the hostages into two groups because the demands were on the Israeli government. And it wasn't separating Jew from non-Jew, right? There were many non-Israeli Jews who were in the uh, non-Israeli group. So I can't call it direct anti-Semitism and the analogy to a selection in Auschwitz is not really the best analogy, but that's what it felt like to a lot of the Jews. Remember, this is only 30 years after the war's end, and um, there actually was a couple of Holocaust survivors in the hostages. One of them had a number on his arm, and he goes over to the German terrorist who's carrying out this separation between the Israeli Jews and non-Israeli Jews, and says, I've gone through a selectia before, and it seems like the new Germany that has arisen is not much different from the old Germany that I experienced. And he's kind of horrified that German terrorist, and he starts getting all worked up, and he says, uh, um, I'm fighting against the Nazi legacy. I don't like the West German government because there's so many former Nazis employed by it. We're the new left. We're the leftists. We're the opposite of the Nazis. We're the opposite of that whole legacy. And we're the ones fighting against that. And how dare you compare us to it? And at the end of the day, there was it did leave an impression. And the members of the revolutionary cells who did survive, in other words, the ones who weren't there, the ones the terrorists were there eventually shot during the rescue operation, but they're very shaken up by the fact that this selection or quasi-selectia took place and they had to rethink their goals and what their means were to the objectives. Because it seems, and this is a recurring theme throughout history, by the way, that the extremes of human society and human action kind of meet at the end. And even though the right and the left may seem so different, but the extreme right and the extreme left somehow meets and their means uh, tend to be similar, which is another lesson to be learned about the leftist terrorists of, of, um, of the Entebbe uh, um, 
issue in addition to the fact that it wasn't just Israelis who were sent to the other room. Anyone who looked religious was perceived to be Israeli, even if they had American or other European passports. So it just added to the fact that they were doing things based on looks. Someone who was wearing a yarmulke or someone who looked religious, even if they presented an American passport, the German terrorists sent them to the Israeli room. So that exactly proved the point um, and, uh, and, and made it, you know, um, a little bit more of a uh, uncomfortable for, for the German terrorists, at least. In any event, there, the, once we mentioned those religious Jews, it's interesting that um, there was uh, several religious Jews in this uh, group. And uh, one instance of them uh, of them coming out prominent was that they refused to eat the meat that was served and they and they said it's not kosher we're not allowed to eat this meat so the ugandan uh, officials who were distributing the food instead gave them more bananas and they that's what they sufficed on instead of having meat and rice or they had just plain rice and bananas and a couple of days later a doctor was called because the majority of the of the hostages were sick and he diagnosed the fact that they were sick by the fact that the meat had been contaminated and was spoiled. And that's why most of the people were suffering from vomiting and, and stomach issues. And, uh, and the religious Jews who had not eaten the meat for kosher reasons, not a single one of them was sick. That's actually documented about this uh, story as well. Um, the, there was an, uh, one of the uh, passengers, hostages, was a fellow named Nachum Dahan. And Nachum Dahan was hiding his Israeli identity. He had a French passport. Um, he was a secular Jew, um, but he had served in the Israeli army. And they suspected him of having served in the Israeli army. They found a picture in his suitcase. And they started to torture him. They're punching him and beating him. And they say, you're a spy, you're an Israeli spy. The Palestinian terrorists uh, were beating him and torturing him. And for an unexplained reason, at some point, they let him go. Um, and he, although he was secular, he attributes this as an uh, intervention by God, and he thanked God publicly for it. It was a Kiddush Hashem. This was also a, a religious moment during that uh, tense-filled week. And the second to last night, of course, was Friday night, right before they are rescued. They don't know they're being rescued, obviously. It's Friday night. And the religious Jews, the traditional Jews, not only the religious ones, gather together and uh, they, they don't have much of a Shabbos. Um, they, they, like, uh, they lit two little wicks and two matches they had from people who were smoking cigarettes. They had two matches. They lit two matches before Shabbos started and they put a bottle of Coke on their little makeshift table with some bananas, and that was their Shabbos suit. Then the only thing they could really do Shabbos stick was to sing Zmiris. So they start singing Zmiris. Now the French Air France pilot, he comes over to them and says, don't sing loud, it's night, and you're going to antagonize the terrorists. And they said, no, Shabbos, we're going to sing. We're going to sing Zmiris. It's the only thing we have here in this, in this faraway place. Who knows what's going to happen? They might kill us all. We're going to sing Zmiris Friday night. And they sing and one of them uh, later said that it was the most beautiful sh- it was the most beautiful Shabbos he ever had ever experienced in his life. That singing the Zemiris in that desolate place after suffering a week in that uh, in the old terminal in the Entebbe airport. Um, if there's two uh, givens, excuse me, if there's two givens of that people have have retained, the Jewish people have retained in their national memory of the Entebbe rescue is that there's two heroes that seem to emerge. 
The first hero is the Air France crew. The pilot, the flight engineer, the crew, stewards, stewardesses. They, they seem to be perceived and understood and remembered in history as heroes. Why? Because supposedly they were given the option to leave when the two batches of hostages, who were non-Israeli hostages, were given, able to leave, and only Israelis and a few other Jews were forced to stay. The Air France crew stayed with them until the end. Now the fact is that they did stay till the end. We'll find out exactly if that makes them heroes, um, because that's one of the revelations of this new book, is that um, he takes a bit of the heroics out of the, out of the action. We'll see that uh, shortly. The other hero that would seem to be obvious and remembered as the hero, the main hero of the whole operation, was the commander of the elite uh, special ops unit that rescued the hostages, Yoni Netanyahu. And he was killed during the operation, so not only did he become a hero, he became a martyr also, which definitely adds to hero status. Um, so we'll have to find out if he is exactly the hero. Definitely, He definitely was a hero, the Shiloh is, if he's the same hero that um, he's remembered to be um, and that his brother would like him to be. Now, the, the decision is taken by the Israeli government not to negotiate with the terrorists. They go back and forth. They vacillate for a while, for a bit, and they eventually are able to use a military option. Uh, the one who was pushing the military option the whole time within the Israeli government was Shimon Peres. Um, another role he plays throughout Israeli history is someone who, from the beginning of the state of Israel till a few years ago, he plays this role in building the economy and the security and the defenses and the government. And uh, a guy who's probably not credited enough with the amount that he's contributed to the Jewish people and to the Jewish state over the years. And this is one of them. He's the one who pushed the whole time. Yitzhak Rabin, who was the prime minister, was very hesitant as he uh, generally was. He felt a serious and tremendous sense of responsibility every time he made these type of decisions. And he was very uh, hesitant to go ahead with it. And Shimon Perez, working together with the army, was the one who was able to push for this option. So they have this special ops operation, one of the, one of the wildest and uh, incredibly heroic special ops. I'm talking about sending special ops people thousands of miles in the air to a foreign country over foreign airspace to operate in an airport that most of them had never been in. Um, some of them had on an Israeli mission to Uganda several earlier, years earlier, especially the second-in-command, who he emerges as a true hero of the story, a fellow by the name of Muki Betzer, who is still alive today, actually, and he is a major uh, uh, t- teller of the story till today, of the way he remembers the events, which uh, um, is, is facts that are supplied in a different light um, that had been understood until this point. So Muki Betzer had been in Uganda together with the Israeli mission a couple of years before, and he understood a thing or two about Uganda, about the airport, about the Ugandan army, and about Idi Amin himself. So the Israeli government sends, sends this special ops team down to Uganda to rescue the hostages. Now, if again we veer off to, to, the other, to another angle here, and this was supplied by a very prominent listener of Jewish history soundbites. I was not aware of this tshuva written by Rebavadi Yosef, Zechrena Levracha, but during the hostage crisis, and so and this uh, very chosh of a listener of, uh, of uh, Jewish history soundbites sent this to me a couple of days ago um, in anticipation of this sound uh, podcast, that uh, a very interesting 
he, uh, Ravadi Yosef tackles three halachic issues, and he's, it's written during the crisis itself, that could be um, an issue of, of, of sending this, these, these special ops down to rescue the hostages. The first one being, if we don't send, if we negotiate with the terrorists, is it pidyon shvuyim? Are we allowed to do pidyon shvuyim when they're demanding an excessive amount? The halacha seems to say that you're not allowed to pay an excessive amount because this encourages the terrorists to kidnap and hijack more people. That's one issue that has to be dealt with, that he deals with. The second one is that you're releasing other terrorists who may go ahead and kill more innocent people. And then it's Safik and Vadai, the hostages are in a Sakana Vadai, and the potential victims of terrorist release are only in a Sakana Safik. And the question is, can we release terrorists? And this is a recurring theme. It comes up every time, unfortunately, uh, and tragically, um, there's people who are kidnapped or captured during wartime, and they're used as a as a hostage to release other terrorists. And he tackles that issue as well. And the third one, which seems to be a minor issue, is that the decision and the actual flying out of the special ops team takes place on Shabbos afternoon, right? Yitzhak Rabin, when he makes the cabinet decision to send the special ops out to Africa, he makes it on Shabbos afternoon, and he knows that decision is going to be taken on Shabbos afternoon. So he asks the religious members of the cabinet to spend Shabbos in Tel Aviv that week because he won't be able to contact them. He won't be able to bring them from Yerushalayim, and they need the cabinet to vote on it in order to let the army go ahead and fly off. And that's an issue that has to be dealt with also. The Sakonis Nefashis involved, and is that, uh, is that relevant to, to go ahead and do it on Shabbos? Not exactly that the government... Um, asked Rebavadi Yosef's advice, but he, always someone who made things relevant and real in halacha, he wrote this tshuva. So the first thing that happens is that we said that the Air France crew is not exactly the heroes they're made out to be, because the terrorists are hoping that the Israeli government capitulates to their demands and releases the terrorists. So they need someone to operate the Air France plane and fly it back to Israel with the hostages to release them. So they need the Air France crew. So the Air France crew is never given the option by the terrorists to leave. So they actually stayed till the end, but not on their own choice, and not because they were heroes, and not because they volunteered to do so, but actually because um, they are they're not they're 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 needed by the terrorists. The more important uh, issue um, is that that the that Yoni Netanyahu, who leads the the operation. Um, they land They land in Entebbe Airport, and they're driving down the runway towards the old terminal building, and the only way that this operation can be successful is if they catch the terrorists by total surprise. And one of the terrorists said to the Air France pilot um, a couple of days before, he said, if anyone comes to rescue you guys, we're going to hear them first. And if we hear them first, we're going we're to have time, and we're going to come in and kill you all. We're not going to let them capture you alive. And that was a serious threat. And so therefore, therefore, the operation would only be successful if they catch them by surprise. There's a Ugandan guard uh, that they bump into on their way to the old terminal. And Muki Betzer says to Yoni Netanyahu, leave him be. And Yoni Netanyahu says, no, he sees us and he's not going to fall for our disguise. They try to disguise themselves in Ugandan army uniforms and a special Mercedes uh, a car and Land Rovers that would make them look like they're part of the Ugandan army. We have to kill him. And if they start shooting, it's going to make noise. And Muki Betzer says, no, you're going to ruin the operation. And Yoni Netanyahu says, fire. 
and they fire, bullets ring out, noise happens, and they start running to the old terminal to make sure that they get to the hostages before they're killed. They get into the old terminal, they shoot the terrorists, and they rescue all the hostages. As it happens, the hostages testified that when the shooting began, the terrorists were alerted, they heard the shooting outside, the terrorists come in with machine guns and grenades. Now think about it, it's an indoor room inside the old terminal. A machine gun, fully automatic, grenades inside an enclosed area. Within seconds, they could and had the potential to kill most of the hostages before the special ops people came in. The terrorists made a decision, which we'll never know why, because the terrorists were all killed. Perhaps they did not want to kill innocent women and children at the last second. We don't know why. It's impossible to know why. But they chose not to kill them. They looked at them, they waved their guns and grenades, and then they took up positions of defense to greet the people, the soldiers coming in. When the soldiers came in, they shot the terrorists. So the reason that the operation was successful is because the terrorists decided that despite the fact that they knew the soldiers were on the way, they heard the gunshots, they made a conscious decision not to murder the hostages. And the operation was almost completely botched by that decision to shoot the Ugandan guard on the way in. So it kind of changes the roles of heroics there. It's obviously that a, obvious that a mistake was made. And then a few seconds later, he, was, he himself was shot in Netanyahu, and he's killed. He becomes a martyr. And if he becomes a martyr, he becomes a hero as well. His younger brother, of course, capitalizes on his fame and uses it to, uh, you know, uh, jet engine his uh, political career afterwards. But that's a different story and much more contemporary in our part of history. So we're not going to get into that uh, either at this point. So those are the heroes and the villains of the Entebbe story. This was Yehuda Geber of Jewish History Soundbites. You can follow, you can, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com um, for comments, sources, or to reserve tours. I'm not sure if to Uganda, but to other places. You can follow uh, Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.